This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I want to keep my uh, comments and my reading from the book uh, uh, somewhat curtailed in order so we can get to the panel discussion. So uh, I don't want to go on too much. I want to just make some preliminary comments uh, before getting into reading some choice uh, selections from, from the book itself. The origins of the project, <clears throat> I uh, began to think of the idea of doing a book on the spirituality of Cesar Chavez as a result of my getting to know and developing a very close relationship with Father Virgilio Elizondo, a diocesan priest from San Antonio and one of the, perhaps not the major uh, uh, theologian with respect to Latino religions in the United States. And we had the honor a few years ago of hosting him here as a distinguished regents lecturer, and then he began to teach some courses for us out of Chicano Studies and out of the Department of Religious Studies. One graduate seminar that he offered, which I sat in on, was looking at uh, contemporary mystics, and he included Cesar Chavez as one of those contemporary mystics. And out of that came the germ of the idea of beginning to focus on Cesar Chavez as a, not so much as a mystic in my case, but as a great spiritual leader. So in some respects, I have uh, Father Elizondo, who also was very kind to write the foreword to the book, to thank for giving me the idea of putting a book like this together. Professor Parler mentioned that a lot of my work, in some ways, has to do with issues of leadership in Chicano uh, history. And uh, that's very true. I focused on the role of leadership in uh, different periods of Chicano history, certainly in the period from the 1930s through the period of the Chicano movement. Uh, <clears throat> I believe in mass movements, but I also believe that mass movements don't really exist without critical leadership. And so it's important to focus on the role that leaders uh, play. So in that sense, my coming to writing about Cesar Chavez, as Professor Palen pointed out, is consistent with that trajectory of, uh, in, in, in my work. But another context uh, to put this book in perspective is that in the last several years or few years, I have moved into another uh, area of research, uh, which is what I would call Chicano Catholic history. Uh, because as I uh, uh, thought, as I've done for many, many years about the trajectory of Chicano history and how we've uh, researched Chicano history, it became uh, rather uh, clear to me that one very major area that we had not been focusing on very much is the role of religion in that experience. Uh, and yet when one thinks about it, it's, it's a major experience. You cannot understand the Chicano experience the Latino experience, or much less any other ethnic experience without having some understanding of the role that religion plays. And yet, in the area of Chicano studies, we tended to do that, and there are different reasons for that, but it's still a very huge gap in the area of Chicano studies and in the area of Chicano history. So in writing this book on Cesar Chavez and linking him with uh, his religious faith and his spirituality, it was in one way of trying to, to narrow that that gap as, as well. I think that uh, the focus of the book uh, is to uh, bring attention to the fact that uh, Cesar Chavez was a major leader 
uh, in the Chicano experience, but also in the United States, but that he's, of course, best well known as the leader of the farm worker struggle, and with good reason for that. Caesar did what had never happened before, was to successfully organize farm workers, and he was able to do that along with his, his uh, cohort, including Dolores Huerta, co-leader of the union, and many others, but Caesar certainly was, in many ways, the driving force. Uh, he's also, of course, known as a civil rights leader because he also championed the civil rights of Mexican-Americans and other minorities in the United States. But uh, in rethinking the role of Cesar Chavez, I began to think that it, an area that he has not been focused on is the fact that, in my estimation, he's one of the great spiritual leaders of 20th century United States history, and that in some ways we need to place him in that perspective as well. And my book is an attempt to bring attention to that aspect of Cesar Chavez. Uh, the book, in some ways, uh, reflects a bit, at least in my introduction, on what we can call the spiritual education of Cesar Chavez. And that begins, first and foremost, uh, with his family, with his uh, grandmother, with his mother. And so the first section of the book, and I'll read one or two selection, the first chapter of the book is called Abuelita Theology. And that's a concept that uh, contemporary theologians who work on Latino religions have uh, more recently uh, uh, emphasized. That is to say that, that religious training, uh, religious uh, values, in many ways don't begin with uh, the churches. Uh, they don't begin with the priest, uh, but they begin in the home. They begin with our grandmothers and with our mothers who first teach us about right and wrong and teach us about our uh, values and so forth. And that certainly was very true of Caesar, uh, that this kind of abuelita theology uh, was very central to his early uh, spiritual uh, training. And then as he later on in his own uh, uh, later adult development, he was very fortunate in his uh, religious education, in his spiritual education, to have met a very important uh, priest, Father Donald MacDonald, who he met in San Jose uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. And it was Father MacDonald who introduced Caesar, who, by the way, had no more than an eighth-grade education, but he became very well self-taught and self-educated. But it was Father MacDonald who would introduce Caesar to some important spiritual figures that would be part of his evolving spiritual education. It was Father MacDonald, for example, that introduced Caesar to Mahatma Gandhi, the great political and spiritual leader that led to the independence of India in the late 1940s from the British Empire, and who, of course, is best known for his concept of nonviolence, which would become very key to Caesar's own spiritual uh, makeup. And so uh, it was through Father MacDonald that he learned about Gandhi. Uh, Father MacDonald also introduced Caesar to Catholic uh, uh, documents uh, and so-called encyclicals or papal pronouncements uh, like Rerum Novarum in 1891, which focused on issues of social just justice in, 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 in industrializing communities. Uh, it was also Father MacDonald who introduced Caesar to the life and writings of St. Francis of Assisi, the leader of the Franciscan order, and, uh, and especially uh, his emphasis on working with the poor and self-sacrifice. And Caesar would, would develop a very close relationship with the Franciscan order. He, he came several times 
to uh, retreats here at the local mission here in Santa Barbara. And so, and of course, other influences, like later on the influence of Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King and his movement of nonviolence, and then, of course, just the influence of the farm workers themselves, their own spirituality. It's, it's interesting how uh, a lot of writers, and the literature on Cesar Chavez and the farm workers is, is quite voluminous, but a lot of writers, journalists, historians, and others who have written on Caesar and the farm workers, while they f- focus on his role, as I say, as a farm worker leader, as a civil rights leader, have kind of not seen all of these symbols of spirituality and religiosity in Caesar Chavez's Chavez life, and yet they were all around him. You know, his marches of what he called peregrinaciones, pilgrimages, like the famous one <clears throat> in 65 from Delano to Sacramento, of how at the head of the march was the image of Our Lady de Guadalupe, a cross, a uh, star of David, uh, clerics and rabbis and sisters who participated, his own fasting, which was based on his spirituality, uh, his own particular devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe. The, the, the trappings of spirituality and religiosity were all there, and yet a lot of writers and other commentators have just kind of missed all of that, and yet, and yet the symbols were certainly there. The title of the book, The Gospel of Cesar Chavez, is not actually a title that I came up with. I had another title, which I can't even remember anymore. But it was my editor who chose that title, and when he first chose it, I thought, hmm, Gospel of Caesar Chavez, how will my good Catholic priest friends and others from religious orders, how will they react to that? Isn't that almost kind of sacrilegious or whatever? I thought it was only uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and maybe the gospel only emanates from Jesus himself and so forth. So I had a little bit of uh, uh, hesitation about that particular title, whether that might be a little bit too controversial. But uh, in the end, I went with it, among other things, because it's a nice, catchy title, and you certainly want that in a book. But... But my good friend, Father Elizondo, who wrote the foreword, I think in some ways put it very well in perspective. And I want to quote what he says in the foreword about the choosing of the title, The Gospel of Cesar Chavez. This is what Father Elizondo had to say about that. He said, the very title of the book might certainly be disconcerting to many Christians, as we believe that there is only one gospel, that of Jesus of Galilee, the Christ. Jesus alone is the good news of God's redemption. There are many versions, such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all are based on the life and works of one man, Jesus, the son of Mary, the carpenter from Nazareth, the son of God. At first reading, I was disturbed by the title. It sounded like Mario Garcia was proposing a new gospel. Yet upon reflection, I was fascinated by it. After all, the gospel is best experienced and appreciated when we encounter persons who are truly living it. And he went on to write, For Caesar Chavez, the gospel of Jesus was not mere beautiful words to be proclaimed, studied, and quoted. For him, the gospel had to become part of one's innermost being so as to become real and effective in today's world. As St. Paul said, I live not I, but it is Christ who lives in me. Caesar allowed Christ to live in him and to act through him. Thus his life is truly the living gospel of Jesus Christ. As the Cursillo movement had taught him, he became the arms, the feet, and the voice of Christ among his people. So when I read that, the Father Elizondo's 
forward as the manuscript was being prepared, I said, well, that's okay. If Father Lisandro thinks it's okay to call it the Gospel Cesar Chavez, that's good enough for me. And then on top of that, uh, when we sent the manuscript out to get quotes that appear in the back of the book and in the front of the book, lo and behold, we got a quote from Cardinal Roger Mahoney in Los Angeles, and uh, he seemed to think, he, just, he didn't seem to have a problem with the title, so if the Cardinal didn't have a problem with the title, I shouldn't have a problem with it as well, so that was fine. What I want to do now is just spend a few minutes uh, just quoting a little bit from the book itself, from Caesar. This is a book that is based on Caesar's own words. It's his, there are his reflections on different spiritual topics. So in one text, we get you know, accumulation of some of his reflections and thoughts, his pensamientos, on uh, different spiritual topics. As I said, chap the first chapter deals with what, we call, what, what is called abuelita or grandmother theology, the fact that Caesar really begins to first develop his sense of spirituality with his, within his family, from his grandmother and from his mother. So, for example, he has this to say, my mother would tell us, you always have to help the needy, and God will help you. And then he said, at another point, he said, Mama Thea, his grandmother, gave us our formal religious training. She was always praying, just praying. Every evening she would sit in bed, and we would gather in front of her. As we knelt by the doorway to her room, we would join her in the rosary that seemed to drone on endlessly. We were required to kneel until the prayer was over, and if we started giggling, she would hit us with her cane. I'm sure some can relate to that, perhaps. After the rosary, she would tell us about a particular saint and drill us on our catechism. The next section is entitled, The Power of Faith. And this is a very powerful quote. It's one of my favorite quotes, which I, because I think it's so telling about Caesar. He, after many, many years of struggle, uh, Caesar was born in 1927. His family were farm workers. Uh, they, they did the migrant cycle. He had no more than an eighth-grade education. He went to World War II. He saw service in the Navy. He's a World War II veteran. Came back after the war, got married to his wife, Helen, began to develop his family. In the 1950s, he begins to become politically engaged for the first time through an organization called CSO, the Community Service Organization. Uh, begins to develop his skills as an organizer, as a community organizer, develop his leadership skills. And then, of course, in 1962, he leaves CSO to develop what eventually will become the United Farm Workers Union. And in the 1960s, of course, they struggled on a long five-year struggle to try to get unionization in the Central Valley for many of the farm workers, especially those working in the grape industry. And that led to the famous five-year grape boycott, or almost five-year grape boycott, that eventually, in 1970, forced the, growers, the grape growers to negotiate contracts. But the struggle didn't end there, because within three years, the growers refused to re-sign those contracts. There was competition from the Teamster Union. So for the next three decades or so, until Caesar died in 1993, it was one constant struggle, con constant ups and downs of trying to Get, bring unionization to bring better wages, better working conditions, better living conditions, get rid of pesticides in the fields that harm workers, that, help, that harm consumers. All of these things, Caesar constantly working, never, never really taking time off. And so people many years later would ask him, what kept you going? I mean, it would seem exhausting just to think about it. How many of us would commit so much of our lives to the kind of organizing and work and struggle that he committed himself? Very few of us could do that. 
And so people would ask him, well, what kept you going? And in this, this quote that we include in the book, is, it tells it all. It's a very powerful statement. And it's amazing, again, that many commentators have missed this. Uh, he said to this question, what, what made you go, go all these years? He says, today, I don't think I could base my will to struggle on cold economics or on some political doctrine. I don't think there would be enough to sustain me. For me, the base must be faith. The base must be faith. It was his faith that kept him going all those years and that kept the struggle going all these years. The farm worker struggle was a faith-based movement led by someone whose faith was central to his being. The next chapter, I won't go through all the chapters, but just some key ones, is is entitled Human Dignity. And this is very important because, as Caesar so many times said, that the farm worker struggle was not just a struggle for material gains. It wasn't just a bread-and-butter struggle. It was to bring human dignity, social justice, a sense of that the farm workers themselves were people, were human beings, and that they had to be treated as human beings. So human dignity was very central to the struggle. And so this is what he had to say about human dignity. He said, it really doesn't matter in the final analysis how powerful we are, how many boycotts we win, how many growers we sign up, or how much political clout we possess. If, in the process, we forget whom we are serving, we must never forget that the human element is the most important thing we have. If we get away from this, we are certain to fail. And then he said, all my life I have been driven by one dream, one goal, and one vision, to overthrow a farm labor system in this nation which treats farm workers as if they, as if they were not important human beings. That dream was born in my youth. It was nurtured in my early days of organizing. It has flourished. Caesar also reflected on the poor. Of course, he was himself poor. Uh, he came from a poor family, and he, came, and he struggled with poor people. And he said this, among other things. He said, people are not going to turn back now. The poor are on the march, black, brown, red, everyone, white included. We are now in the midst of the biggest revolution this country has ever known. We shall strike, we shall organize boycotts, we shall demonstrate, and we shall have political campaigns. We shall pursue the revolution we have proposed. We are sons and daughters of the farm workers' revolution, a revolution of the poor seeking bread and justice. And then he said, We know that our cause is just, that history is a story of social revolution, and that the poor shall inherit the land. Caesar, of course, uh, was someone who uh, believed in sacrifice. He believed in sacrificing for others. This is part of his uh, family legacy. It's part of what he inherited from Father MacDonald. It's part of what he inherited from learning about Gandhi, from St. Francis, and, of course, of working with the farm workers. The idea of self-sacrifice. And, again, it's, it's a wonderful concept. Very few of us could live up to that. He said about self-sacrifice, he said, we are working towards creating the new man, the new man in the fields, the man who will think of the common good as you, as you and I do, instead of the man who thinks of himself first. Of course, uh, at that time in the 60s when he 
reflected on some of these things. He was using terms like man in a kind of generic way. Uh, maybe in some cases, as Professor Ravosa has proposed in an earlier discussion, maybe he was in some cases only reflecting on, on males, but I think also in some cases using it in a generic way as it was used in that period of time, pre-feminist movement to include both men and women. He said further in, of self-sacrifice, in giving of yourself, you will discover a whole new life of meaning and love. Caesar, of course, is best known for his theme of nonviolence. And it's the, the chapter that's it's the longest chapter because he reflected a great deal on nonviolence. And I'll just share a couple or so of quotes and this is a wonderful quote because I think it says not only a lot about Caesar, but a lot of all of us uh, with respect to violence and nonviolence. And Caesar was the first to admit, undoubtedly, that he was not a perfect man, that he was not a perfect human being, that he had, you know, he had his faults, he had his temptations. And, and in this wonderful statement, he, he, he suggests that. He says, I, I am not a nonviolent man. I am not a nonviolent man. I am a violent man who is trying to be nonviolent. I am a violent man who is trying to be nonviolent. That's a tremendous reflection in terms of, it says a lot about him, but also about us, of how we also struggle against our sense of violence, of wanting to strike out and hurt others because we've been hurt or they've hurt us, but yet how we have to also reflect on whether that's really how we should act and how we need to control ourselves and discipline ourselves so that we don't strike out that way. He said, when I read the biography of St. Francis of Assisi, I was moved when he went before the Muslim prince and offered to walk through fire to end a bloody war. And I still remember how he talked and made friends with a wolf that had killed several men. St. Francis was a gentle and humble man. And then he said, people equate this is very important because some people then and perhaps even today believe that to be nonviolent means that you're passive, that you don't do nothing, that you just turn the other cheek. But that wasn't what Caesar was saying. Uh, he also uh, proposed what he called militant nonviolence. That is to say that you're nonviolent, but that doesn't mean that you're passive, that you're active. You organize, you strike, you go on boycotts, you pressure, and so forth. So. For him, nonviolence wasn't just kind of standing still and not doing anything. It was being active, trying to bring about change. That's what he, would, what he and his struggle was all about. So he said, people equate nonviolence with inaction, with not doing anything. And it's not that at all. It's exactly the opposite. For example, he said, Gandhi, Gandhi never said not to do anything. He said exactly the opposite. He said, do something, offer your life. He said, if you really want to do something, be willing to die for it. That's asking for the maximum contribution. I'll end with uh, one quote on another key chapter called Social Justice, because again, the farm worker's struggle wasn't just for bread and butter for material gains. It was also for human dignity, as I mentioned, but it was also for social justice, to bring justice to the farm workers and to their families. And so here's one or two quotes on Caesar's reflections on social justice. He said, if I'm going to save my soul, it's going to be through the struggle for justice. We want radical change. Nothing short of radical change is going to have any impact on our lives or our problems. 
We want sufficient power to control our destiny. This is our struggle. It's a lifetime job. The work for social change and against social injustice is never ended. We seek our basic God-given rights as human beings because we have suffered and are not afraid to suffer. In order to survive, we are ready to give up everything, even our lives, in our fight for social justice. We shall do it without violence because that is our destiny. I want to now turn to our panelists who will give us our own reflections on Caesar's reflections, so we look forward to that. Thank you very much, and I'll probably say a few things later on. Thank you. And so we'll now we'll begin with Professor Edwina Barbosa. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Um, and I want to thank uh, Professor Garcia for inviting me to speak um, on his most recent book. It's a pleasure to be able to publicly praise this piece. It's, uh, it's a wonderful book that does a great deal to foreground an important uh, theme that has been, uh, to a certain extent, overlooked, and that is the spiritual basis of Cesar Chavez's political work and life and activism. Uh, this perspective that Professor Garcia presents in this work is very much needed. We have, as he mentioned, a lot of research and scholarship on the various sources in Chavez's work, on uh, the debt that he owed to Gandhi and Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence, on his adaptation of Martin Luther King's application of nonviolence in the black civil rights movements, um, on his debt to the training that he received from uh, Father McDonnell and the, his looking at Catholic encyclicals and so on, and also very importantly, I think, his debt to Saul Alinsky uh, and to Fred Ross and to CSO, um, which also brought uh, attention to the way that the networks in, in parishes and in religious communities could be an important basis um, for activism. And what I expect, especially like in this piece, though, is the way that Professor Garcia brings this looking at the sources of Cesar Chavez activism a step further and draws our attention uh, to the religious basis. And I particularly like the way that this piece begins, uh, as he mentioned, with Abuelito theology, the teachings of mothers and grandmothers. And in the very first paragraph um, of this piece, Professor Garcia writes, Abuelito theology also involves saying the rosary at home teaching the Bible, parental blessings, and a variety of other religious forms of education offered by grandmothers and mothers to their children. The following quotes by Cesar Chavez indicate that he and his siblings received their initial religious influences within the home from their mother and their grandmother. It is Abuelita theology that is at the core of Cesar's spirituality. It is Abuelita theology that is at the core of Cesar's spirituality. That's a strong claim, and it's a claim that raises other questions for us. What would it mean? What is the specificity of Catholic religious training that is channeled through women? There were no priests around in the area of Yuma where Cesar Chavez grew up. It was the mother and the grandmother, his mother and grandmother, to whom that training fell. What would that specificity in Catholic training be? And the answer immediately comes uh, in Chavez's own words, and... That specificity is the attentiveness to the needs of others. To put faith first, to put God first, means to put aside oneself, to put aside selfishness, and to attend to the needs of others. That is the principal teaching, as Catholicism is channeled through his mother's words and his mother's grandmother's teachings. His mother modeled this in her daily behavior. It wasn't just 
talk. It was something that she did, her generosity to the needs of the poor and the hungry. And there are two quotes, I think, that are, that are really beautifully chosen for this piece that make this point. Quote, she had made a pledge, this is referring to his mother, had never to turn away anyone who came for food. And there were a lot of ordinary people who would come, and a lot of hobos, at any time of the day or night, and most of them were what? When the children would come home from school, their mother, Cesar Tava's mother would send them out and say, you can't play until you found somebody who's hungry and they need to eat, so bring them home, and after you've done that, then you can go off and play. That was daily life for him. Selfishness, though, was also an important theme. Although my mother opposed violence, I think the thing she really cracked down on the most was being selfish. She made us share everything we had. If we had an apple or a tiny piece of candy, we had to cut it into five pieces. This early training, this spirituality rooted in an abuelita theology, I would suggest helped enormously and served as a basis for Cesar Chavez's ecumenicalism. To unite people within the movement, he turns to faith, to bring a community of faith, faithful, a community of believers together through their faith, and to make Christianity or other forms of faith, other religions, a source of that unity. But he also attended to the needs of those who were unlike him, who were not on a spiritual path. The movement also created space for those who did not share the Catholic faith. Symbols and language were always used that allowed and encouraged identification with the movement to those who had a secular mind, to those who were coming to the movement on a secular basis. Faith as an organizing outlook need not alienate those who were not on a spiritual path. Again, thinking about the needs of others, attending to the needs of others who are unlike yourselves. An example of this can be seen in the 1966 pilgrimage from Delano to Sacramento. Again, here we see the complex crafting of language, intersecting symbolism and imagery um, that is covered here very well by Professor Garcia, and also he made reference to it in his opening talks. At once, you can see this march on one hand as a Lenten penitential pilgrimage, and on the other, on the other hand as a political march to Sacramento. On the first interpretation, the pilgrimage was a sacrifice, a penance for the sin of violence. It was about having the farm workers recommit themselves to nonviolence, to renunciate violence, to renounce violence as a means of social change. Gandhi used the same approach to get people to invest themselves in the process of nonviolence. As a Lenten sacrifice, this pilgrimage to Sacramento was also preparation for the struggle that was going to lay ahead. Sacrifice is an exercise in building one's strength. To associate nonviolence with faith and the cause of the movement was a very powerful strategic move on the part of Chavez. He could unite the devout farm workers behind the idea of nonviolence, which for him, as well as for King, had been a very difficult sell. He admits in the reading that you made, an, a, a temptation toward violence. And that temptation toward violence was a challenge that the movement needed to overcome. And so this link in Ch for Chavez was very necessary um, to give the farm workers stamina, 
to link faith and nonviolence, to give the farm workers stamina um, for the discernment that they would have to exercise later down the road, for the moral judgment uh, that they would have to exercise around the temptation of violence, and they would need that stamina. On the other hand, the image of this march from Delano to Sacramento had other connotations as well, secular connotations. The pilgrimage was not to a sacred site. This wasn't a march to Chimayo or someplace else like that. Sacramento is a seat of political power. It's the, it is the capital of the state. And there is another tradition of marching to places of power to gain attention, to gain action for overlooked needs and forms of subordination. And it was in this tradition that the march could also be seen. The quintessential march of this kind, of course, had taken place three years earlier in 1963. It was the March on Washington. But marches of this kind had been used as a political tool for a significant period of time already. These marches were a display of the adage there is power in numbers. In as early as 1941, black labor leaders, black civil rights leaders such as Philip Randolph had gained policy changes around labor issues with President Roosevelt by even threatening a march of this kind. So the imagery and the set of meanings and connotations was already there for the secular-minded to see a march of this nature as an important political intervention. And of course, in 1963, Martin Luther King developed, developed, delivered, excuse me, the I Have a Dream speech. And in that speech, he brought home to Americans and to legislators the needs of blacks and the necessity for legislation to change the status of blacks in the United States. In 1966, three years later, a similar march from Delano to Sacramento, it was Dolores, Dolores Huerta who gave the parallel address. It was Dolores Huerta who stated for the onlooking world when they had arrived in Sacramento on the morning of Easter Sunday, why they had come. And I think, too, in terms of understanding Chavez's spirituality, it is significant to think about the fact that it is Huerta who makes this parallel speech to the I Have a Dream speech. She was and is a powerful and charismatic orator. Chavez had a very different style, a quieter style. She took up tasks such as this speech that required that skill of powerful oration. It was she that negotiated union contracts. It was she who encountered legislatures in many instances. It was she who did, performed public presentations of this kind. There was a full partnership between Huerta and Chavez in which Chavez displayed the grace of listening to the voices of women, particularly the voice of Dolores Huerta. And of course, this was a grace that was amply in dis on display in Christ's own ministry. One of the most radical messages of Christ's ministry is that it's important to listen to the voices of women, and that wasn't a popular thing to do in Christ's time. Addressing the legislature as the pilgrimers had arrived in Sacramento, she said, you do not have to guess at what we need. She said, quote, we are here, and we embody our needs for you. Here in this language, Huerta's language, again, links the secular with the religious. It's the secular meanings of civil rights, racism, poverty, resisting racism, resisting poverty, with the Catholic traditions in Christianity of the embodiment of suffering and the offering of embodied suffering for the good of others who are not present. And this is a major part of that tradition. To what extent 
Did Chavez consciously consider his outstanding ability to listen and to appreciate and cooperate with women, listen to their voices as part of his spirituality, as part of his discipleship? That, I don't know. Uh, but it was certainly evident in all of his actions, in the things that he did, in the work that he did, and those he included uh, in the movement. And there is in this way uh, something there for Chavez that is not as evident uh, for King or for Gandhi. And this raises a question, I think, about the intellectual engagement between Chavez and Huerta and the way that that engagement, with its spiritual basis in mind, influenced and shaped Chavez's political work. Certainly there was a division of labor between the two, but it raises the question, and I think this piece gives a, a fantastic springboard for inquiring into this further question, in what way did they collaborate on the generation of ideas that were important to the movement? If we take important passages, for example, out of the plan of Delano, or out of the description of the, of, um, the March to Sacramento, in which you have this combination of religious and secular language, to what extent did they both collaborate on that fusion? of language that's so strategic and important for bringing together a whole variety of people to work for this movement. Um, I want to thank uh, Professor Garcia for giving us a very important piece, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Now I want to introduce uh, the Reverend Chris Hardmeyer to share his reflections and we're very honored to have him here because uh, Reverend Hardmeyer not only brings his own, uh, you know, uh, deep reflections, but also his, his uh, many experiences working with Cesar Chavez over the years. So I'm sure he'll share some of that with us today. Chris? And, uh, and thank you for your book, uh, that magnificent introduction and I think a totally unique collection. I don't think it exists anywhere else. It exists here and there but you have brought it together in one place and it includes um, all that I conceive of the, the most powerful statements that Caesar made in his life as an organizer. Um, Mario asked me to talk about how uh, I connected with Cesar Chavez and how the migrant ministry connected with Cesar Chavez, and I will do that and then make some comments also. Um, I came to California in 1961 as a very young, uh, wet behind the ears, um, willing to learn but needing to learn a lot, director of an organization called the California Migrant Ministry. My predecessor, Doug Still, said you have to meet all these people, bishops, conference ministers, uh, monsignors, etc., etc. But he put at the top of the list, the first person you have to meet, the first two people you have to meet are Cesar Chavez and Fred Ross Sr. And so I met them in September of 1961 at a little cafe in East Los Angeles. And... Um, and Caesar invited me to participate in the CSO board meetings and conventions, and I was fascinated and learned a lot and, and got involved first through the CSO. The migrant ministry itself had programs all over the state of California. 
It was known primarily for its summer program with migrant farm workers, but we also had year-round programs in, in settled migrant areas, what were called at that time rural fringe communities where farm workers who could were settling down. And we were Protestant. We were primarily white. We were uh, weak, if not worse, in Spanish. Um, as... as as middle-class white Protestants reaching out to poor brown people, we did about everything you could imagine that a church would do. Vacation Bible school, uh, Christmas baskets, Thanksgiving turkeys, uh, children's games and programs. Uh, we even showed movies in English to braceros uh, who were here at that time from Mexico. And uh, for some god-awful reason, they enjoyed them. <coughs> because their life really was nothing about us and our movie. It was because their life was so bleak. So we were kind of an innocent, typical church group um, spread out throughout California and especially in the San Joaquin Valley. And then, but we knew Caesar. And we watched him as he left the CSO and started the building the National Farm Workers Association in Delano in 1962. He came to some of our staff meetings. Uh, whenever I was in the Valley, I used to visit uh, their home. He was often not there. Um, but we developed this kind of like trusting relationship. We believed in what he was trying to do. I don't think any of us were sure that he was going to succeed, considering the odds he was up against. Agribusiness in California is extremely powerful today. But in 1962, agribusiness dominated Democratic and Republican politics in our state, as well as the economy of our state. So Caesar was up against a massive uh, uh, array of American economic power and virulent anti-union commitment on the part of the growers. So we watched and we learned and we believed uh, and we hoped. And then in 1965, the Delano grape strike kind of happened. Uh, Caesar didn't plant it. The Filipino workers planted it, but they jo Caesar and the farm workers joined, as Mario describes beautifully. Um, and then at that point, Caesar turned to the, his friends in the Protestant migrant ministry and said, uh, "Can you help us?" And uh, and I said, uh, "Help? What help?" He said, "Well, I'd like to have a couple of your staff people on the picket line in Delano, uh, full time. Uh, I'd like to have." You organize food caravans to Delano uh, to, to help the strikers, and uh, I'd like you to start raising money. Uh, not necessarily for food, but just for gas money for workers going out to the picket line every morning and coming home. So our staff, I mean, I could have said no, but our staff would have done it anyway. But at that time, they were so committed to, what, to Caesar's dream. And I was the only one who, who had to worry about the budget and, uh, and our church sponsors. Uh, who were mostly uh, mainline Protestant denominations. I don't know how many of you know mainline Protestant denominations, but they're, they're known for being somewhat liberal, but not necessarily on the issue of uh, labor struggles that affect their members. <clears throat> so I knew this was going to be difficult. Thank God I did not know how difficult it would be. And so we said yes, and we helped. And we just became involved, and slowly but surely, the, the example of Caesar and the farm workers and their sacrifice and their willingness to do whatever it took to win this battle 
just drew us in more and more and more. And so more and more of our migrant ministry staff actually worked side by side with strikers and boycotters. More and more our time and energy was spent organizing church groups around the country to support especially the great boycott because for people out in the other cities of the country, the great boycott was the one thing they could do, uh, one natural thing they could do. And, uh, and so our life became this fascinating uh, connection between the, the, the beautiful, creative, courageous farm worker movement and the Protestant church. And uh, because we had staff there in Delano, we knew what was going on. We didn't, I didn't have to ask Caesar. I could ask somebody whose payroll, but whose paycheck I was, you know, sending. Um, so we were always on touch with what was happening. We always could tell other church people what they could do, what was relevant today, tomorrow. It changed often. Um, so that relationship developed. And I have to say, Caesar was um, remarkably respectful of the fact that the migrant ministry was this separate institution with its own budget and its own problems and its own bureaucratic, bureaucratic difficulties. And uh, so whenever he wanted something hard, he wanted us to do something difficult, he called me and asked. And... uh, he always said in public speeches the Margaret Ministry never said no to him. Whatever he asked for anything, they said yes. And, and I've, I thought, I've thought back, that's pretty much true. I sometimes negotiated, you know, like, I don't think I can get 50 ministers to Delano next week, maybe 30. Uh, but uh, I often reflected, how many times could we have actually said no to Caesar and had him still keep calling? Uh, he needed us. That was, our, that was the primary link. That was the, sort of like the guts of the relationship. And he called on us, and we helped. And it was, I think, historically, it was a, a, a unique partnership. Um, I, I've been to more masses than I have been to Protestant church services, you know, in my life. Uh, and... Uh, and I learned the depth of Caesar's commitment to his Catholic faith and the beautiful, simple, innocent piety of the farm workers. And every time I would think kind of like bad things or questioning things about uh, the church and the Catholic church in particular, I would watch farm workers streaming up to take mass at an uh, outdoor farm worker mass, and I would just... I, I would cry. It's just, it's just uh, anyway. So that's what happened to us. And I did that for uh, 20 years. And then from 1981 to 1989, I lived and worked at La Paz uh, and did various tasks for Caesar there. And my wife also lived there and was the nurse. So what was he like, actually, <laughs> day by day, day in and day out? Um, and I don't plan to tell you all that I know. Um, I think one thing we need to remember, I love the fact that this book was done, but this book probably never would have been done or even thought about 
if Caesar wasn't first and foremost an organizer, a well-trained, determined, pragmatic, creative organizer. For Caesar, nonviolence wasn't just a matter of faith, it was a matter of strategy. The Delano grape strike in 1965 was faltering. I mean, the growers hadn't done anything except recruit stripe breakers from all over the Southwest. Uh, and, and workers were beginning to lose their homes and wives were arguing with their husbands about, you know, who is this Cesar Chavez guy and how long can we keep this going? And, uh, and so that's, that's where the March to Sacramento came from. And it was a pilgrimage and a political event, but it was also part of maintaining people's commitment to the movement and to nonviolence. You've got to be doing something. You can't sit and worry about what's happening next. And following that, the boycott. And one of the most magnificent untold stories of the farm workers' movement is that the Delano grape strikers were asked by Caesar to leave their homes and go out to all these strange, cold, English-speaking cities of the United States to tell their story and ask folks like you and me to boycott grapes. And that sacrifice is kind of like symbolizes for me what, what the farm workers' movement uh, taught us all and how they led us all. And here are these beautiful people who know hardly any English and who are dealing primarily with English-speaking people uh, telling the story of the Leno grape strike. And I often say to people, like, somebody comes to you from Delano, and they're poor, and they tell this story. I mean, who could say no? Who could possibly say no? Well, some people could, but, you know, they don't really count in the equation of human history and human justice. But most people who heard them could not say no, and the boycott really blossomed from there. So... Nonviolence was a matter of commitment, and it was, but it was also, and a faith and commitment but it was also a matter of developing strategies that kept things rolling so that people were not in despair. And there was a big threat of violence on the part of the workers in Delano as the frustrations grew. And the fast of 1968, Mario asked me, was I there? Yes, I was there. This is a great example of Caesar's ecumenism. He asked the migrant ministry staff, to distribute the bread at that breaking of the fast where Bobby Kennedy came. And I, as the director of the migrant community, had the honor of distributing the bread to Caesar and Helen and Caesar's mom and Bobby Kennedy. And in some of the pictures of this event, you can see my bald head uh, down, on the, down on my knees handing them the bread. And... Um, as has been said before. He started with this righteous anger that he had developed in his childhood, in his own experience, but especially watching how the growers treated his parents, his amazing parents, by the way, his mother who lived to be 101 and his father to 99. Caesar should have lived a long, long life. But my own Theory is the, the fast injured him so that he died at 67 instead of 
95. And, but he, he, he took that anger and molded it into this, uh, this organizational greatness with the help of Fred Ross and Father McDonald and others. And, uh, and that's the Cesar Chavez that we learned and that we followed and we, we came to love. I think I will stop right there. One last thing. All of us in the movement from 1971 on, even the migrant ministry staff, we were then the National Farm Market Ministry, lived on room and board and at first $5 a week and then $10 a week. Now, room and board meant what your bills were wherever you lived, out in Cleveland or in Los Angeles or in Delano or wherever, plus spending money of $10 a week. And that commitment to voluntary poverty was central to Caesar's life. And it was challenged within. There were challenges to that policy within the union from key board members. And his position basically was, if I'm going to be here, that's the way it needs to be. So with that, I want to pass and respond to any questions. Chris, thank you for that wonderful, beautiful, moving reflection. We, we really must get you to write your own story and your own autobiography. So hopefully maybe this will be an impetus to do that. <laughs> you think about that. Okay. We want to now move to uh, Professor Rudy Busto from the Department of Religious Studies, and he'll share his reflections on uh, Caesar's uh, spirituality. Professor Busto. I want to thank uh, Professor Barbosa and Reverend Hartmeyer for their uh, wonderful comments. I almost feel like I, don't, I shouldn't say anything because of the power of both of their presentations. I want to begin by thanking Professor Garcia for this book project. Uh, when he first mentioned to me that he was thinking about compiling a book of Caesar's words, maybe two years ago at lunch, the faculty club, uh, I sat there and I smiled and said, sounds like a good idea, but I have to admit that I was a bit skeptical because I didn't know where Professor Garcia was going to find all of his sources. Uh, I had, I had at, at that point, been teaching a course on Chicano-Latino religions for about a decade, and when it came to uh, the Cesar Chavez material, um, I have to admit that there were a, only a few things that those of us who taught this course across the country used, and one of them was the Mexican-American American and the church, and some other small things, and I had no idea, absolutely no idea, that there was so much material, and so I really think that... that um, well, obviously, the historian has proven his craft, right, that I'm sure that this book will be uh, widely read and circulated, and I think the impact of this book is going to be felt for many, many years to come, and uh, I should have known better at that lunch that, uh, that, you know, that what Professor Garcia sets his mind to do, that it actually comes to pass. So here we have another uh, sense of the prophet here. Um, in his introduction to the collection, Professor Garcia makes the claim that, quote, Cesar Chavez is one of the great figures in the history of the United States in the 20th century, and he continues, I maintain one of its great spiritual figures. And taking this as my cue, I want to fashion my comments, my brief comments, around the second half of that statement, that Chavez is one of the great spiritual figures in the 20th century in the United States. And I think the sentiment is a good one, and I agree with Professor Garcia and with uh, Father Virgilio Elizondo, 
who in his introduction to the book refers to Chavez as, quote, a great icon of sanctity and justice. And knowing uh, Father Elizondo, these words are not to be taken lightly. Um, But what I want to think about, though, for the next couple of minutes is what it really means to, as Professor Garcia writes of his goal, quote, to further the integration of Cesar Chavez into the canonical text of U.S. history, end quote. But of course, I would like to amend that comment to include, the, to say, the further integration of Cesar Chavez into the canonical text of U.S. religious history. Now, this process, I would think, involves more than the tactic of simply adding Chavez's name to a list of spiritual giants of the age, right? So one of the things that happens in American history when you do ethnic history is you get the greatest hits, names of the people of that particular community, and then you just move on, right? So we get the list of the usual suspects, and obviously Chavez's name would be here. And certainly more, and certainly this would be more than putting his name in a, on a list or begrudging him a paragraph or two in what I would say would be the dusty canon of American religious history. And here I'm holding up Sidney Alstrom's uh, A Religious History of the American People, which for, for people in my field becomes uh, not only the best doorstop you can own, but also one of the things that you're required to, to read, uh, if, not, if not once, but twice and thrice, if you're doing American religious history. And uh, Alstrom's book has, as its last chapter, which he, which he, he wrote, wrote the book in the early 70s, and the last chapter is called The Turbulent 60s. And of course, uh, in this, what's, what's often you called the magisterial work of Sidney Alstrom, in The Turbulent 60s, uh, Alstrom is completely silent, of course, or we're not surprised, on the farm labor issue, let alone the innovations of Chicano religion in the genismo or the name Cesar Chavez. So if you look at the index, the only person who gets... A chapter in Alstrom's book is uh, Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. Everybody else is a, gets a paragraph, right? So I guess Chavez is in good company there. Uh, Professor Garcia's collection here contributes to the current rewriting of American religious history. In the academic fields where I am employed, we are just beginning the process of imagining more than what we have been handed by the previous generation of scholars like Alstrom. And, you know, there are insurgent voices of new religious traditions, of globalized imports, domestic exported religion, movements of secular transcendence, and the tumbling forward of old-time religions, of Dharma seekers and Burning Man visionaries. These are all changing the substance and categories for the way we think and write about religion in the United States. And in the mix of all of these, of all of these whirling pieces is the lone prophetic voice out of the desert, the vox clamantis in deserto, right? the lone prophetic voice out of the southern Arizona desert. About a year ago, the San Francisco Chronicle ran a story about desert prophets. And a professor from a university up north somewhere, we don't know where, uh, was writing a book on the connection between politics and the Southwest. And he was thinking about the importance of, or the connection, the weird connection between deserts and prophets. Why did prophets come out of the desert? And so this professor, who will go unnamed, uh, imagined that, that there were, in fact, three recent American prophets out of the Southwest desert. And here is his list. Barry Goldwater, Pat Tillman, who was the the football player who was killed in Iraq through friendly fire, and John McCain. These were the three desert prophets that Professor X said was evidence of the power of the American Southwest 
and the cactus there. So of course, I immediately sat down and penned my letter to the editor, which appeared a week later, exclaiming my utter surprise and disappointment over the shameless promotion of a particular view of the desert prophet. The prophet, I reminded the reader, was not someone elected to office, not someone who pandered to political faction, or not someone who was lifted up as a hero. Actually, the prophet was an unpopular person, usually reviled, and as Mark 6.4 of the Gospel says, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown. So if the good professor wanted to see and understand the real prophet coming out of the Arizona desert, he should, of course, look to the voice that he missed in his assessment, Cesar Chavez. So all of the comments that, that uh, Professor uh, Barbosa made and Reverend Hartmeyer made, and I'm sure that Father Jack will make, will attest, in fact, to this prophetic voice. And here, what, it, what I mean by prophetic is not about not prophecy in the sense of telling the future, but prophecy in the sense of standing up for what you know is, in fact, the truth. Standing up for what you know is, in fact, justice. Making the claim, making the stand in spite of overwhelming odds, as, as Reverend Hartmeyer uh, details for us in his discussion about you know, what Cesar was up against in terms of the California agricultural um, uh, conglomerates. So, vox clamantis in deserto, the lone voice crying in the wilderness. That the Professor X could miss what to me is the obvious choice here, Cesar Chavez, reveals Unfortunately, that we still have a long way to go before we can truly integrate the life of, and legacy of Cesar Chavez into our American religious history textbooks. The next thing, of course, will be to get Chavez's message itself across. Right? So the first step is what, Gar- what Professor Garcia's book is doing, is, putting the, is, is, is inserting Cesar Chavez strategically and in an insurgent way into American religious history. And the second thing I'm suggesting here is that, that Chavez's message gets across. Um, this, this last thing I hope Professor Chavez's book will help lead the way. Um, I want to finish with four questions for us to consider, if not here, then certainly in conversation later. First question, uh, how does Chavez's religious life rewrite California labor history? Right? What does it mean, for example, that, that the, uh, the labor movement, the farm laborers would, would practice with things like holding the mass or foot washing as part of, the, a part of their meetings. How does this, in fact, give us a texture into the California labor history uh, field? Second, how does this, how does, and related to this is still the first question, is how does this, uh, does Chavez's religious life rewrite Chicano history? Uh, how, does he rewrite, how does it rewrite movimiento history? What, is, what does it mean if Professor Garcia is right to say that the farm worker movement was a faith-based movement? This is new language. This is not Rudy Acuna's Occupied America language, right? Um, and as some of you know, uh, I, I wrote a book on, on Reyes Lopez Tijerina and suggested that, that Reyes Lopez Tijerina's politics was in fact informed and created by his Pentecostal uh, training, right? So reading the Bible in a particular way required uh, Tijerina to read the, the U.S. Constitution in a particular way. If the Constitution said something, then it meant it, right? So how does Chavez's religious life rewrite both California labor history and Chicano history? Second, how do the religious practices and beliefs embodied by Chavez require us to rethink the interrelationship between religion and politi- politics? And this is, of course, something that Professor Pervosa has, has, has pointed out. Uh, and, I, and I mean this interrelationship beyond the simple knee-jerk 
relationship we make in our minds when we, when we think about, say, the evangelical right wing and partisan party politics. Right? So what does it really mean to consider the life of spirituality, not religion as organizations or institutions, but as individual notions of what is ethical, of what is the good, of what is justice? How does this then, in fact, create the, uh, the ground for social justice and for progressive politics. Third, how do the practices of fasting and nonviolence and maybe even, even poverty as arguably South Asian, as South Asian, Hindu or Jain or Buddhist forms of relig- religions revise our expectations about how Latinos are religious, right? We assume that when you hear a Spanish surname that we're talking about Roman Catholicism when actually uh, recent survey material has, has definitely shown that while Catholics, that Catholic, Catholicism remains the major form of religious affiliation by Latinos, there are actually, there's, the world is much more, a much more interesting place. And if, we, and if we go back to cultural heroes like Cesar Chavez and think about the way he adapted and revised uh, uh, Hindu or Jain notions of, uh, of Satyagraha, Right, of holding faith, or upavasa, uh, fasting, right? uh, nonviolence, ahimsa, how these things, how this vocabulary, which is, which is, is foreign to Latino people, or we think it is, is actually very much a part of the actual writing of Chicano history. Right? So, we, so these borders between us and them immediately melt away when we, when we begin to think about the categories of religious belief and practice uh, in, in the example of Cesar Chavez. And finally, the, my last question is, how does the theology that arises out of Chavez's writings, the book, and, and his work contribute to a distinctive, distinctively Latino liberation theological tradition? In Latino theology, the, the usual story is, is, is that, that Chicanos and uh, Puerto Ricans and Cubans and Dominicans and Salvadoranos, that we have inherited the liberation theological a tradition from Latin America, out of Vatican II, and out of and out of the work done by the by the Council of Bishops in Latin America. Uh, but I would like to suggest that perhaps there are there is another genealogy here, which has to do with the way that 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 Chicanos, that other that U.S. Latinos received their liberationist tradition, not not only from Latin America, but also through African American Protestant theology. Uh, from uh, white liberal theology, from feminist theology, right? But also here, in the case of Cesar Chavez, we have, a, we have in fact, an embodied praxis. We don't need to go to Medellin. We don't need to go to, uh, to um, uh, uh, the usual encyclicals to find, to find the, the natural form of liberation theology being promoted by Cesar Chavez, Right? Uh, this is something. You know, this is brand new stuff, and it, and it's only occasioned at this point by by our ability to have all of these um, statements made by Chavez put together in in this book by uh, Mario Garcia. So Mario, from that conversation a couple of years ago at lunch with my big question mark over my head, like I don't know if he can do it because I don't know if there's that much stuff out there. I really have to concede to you that that here the historian wins, and that uh, that uh, that I I I thank you for very much, and will thank you again in the future for producing this book. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Busto. And I do remember that lunch. I don't remember what we had, but 
I remember that lunch very well. We now turn uh, to Father Jack Clark Robinson and uh, for his reflections on the book as well. Father Jack. Mario asked me to speak particularly of the Franciscan influence on the spirituality of Cesar Chavez, but I must admit an inadequacy. I am relatively well acquainted with Franciscan spirituality, and thanks to this wonderful work, which Mario has done, I now know infinitely more about the spirituality of Cesar Chavez than I did before reading it. But I cannot authoritatively, authoritatively declare the spirituality of Cesar Chavez strictly Franciscan. Franciscan spirituality is only a part of Christian spirituality. I happen to think that it's the best part and, in a way, is, is the essence of Christian spirituality. But other Christians might challenge me if I were too bold in stating that the beauty of these words of Cesar Chavez and the beauty of the life from which they flowed came exclusively from a Franciscan source. Nonetheless, some Franciscan influences, consciously or unconsciously, nudged Cesar Chavez along. So what I want to do is to point to some of the congruities of the heart between Cesar Chavez and Francis of Assisi. These two spiritual giants shared, I think, at least five essential values. First, both deeply appreciated the meaning of the incarnation of God in Jesus and its implications for all human beings and for all creation. Second, they shared an innate sense of the power and the need for a truly fraternal life. Third, a special concern for the poor and the marginated moved both of them. Fourth, they both longed to be instruments of peace. Fifth and finally, they knew a truly joyful and total trust in God, which arose from simplicity joined to humility and poverty and minority. I hope that you will take it on my authority that these values informed everything that we know of what Francis of Assisi did in his life of conversion. I think that we can see these values in the life and hear them in the words of Cesar Chavez. I have a few examples. First, powerful men and women must be helped to realize that there is nothing to fear from treating their workers as fellow human beings. That's on page 40. And that 
is in its essence the lesson of the incarnation and the lesson of fraternity at its deepest level. That you and I, whether teacher and student, you and I, whether employer and employee, are essentially sharers in one dignity, in one human dignity. And that's, that's at its essence Franciscan, and that's at its essence what Cesar was doing all through his life. Cesar spoke of Francis and said, quote, He was one of the saints that I admired most because of his commitment. He looked at poverty as a godsend, not as a curse. He took poverty and made it work for him so that he could help other people. Also, what attracts me is his whole commitment to peace. Not only peace where there's war, but peace with oneself and one's creator, peace with your surroundings and the environment. That's on pages 46 and 47. A word about Franciscan poverty. And I think that Cesar Chavez is one of those people who actually got Franciscan poverty, which is so often misunderstood. The essence of Franciscan poverty is an appreciation of the good of material things and of the better of human things and of the best of spiritual things. Material goods are good, but human relationships are better and relationships in God our best. If I cling to the things of this world, I cannot open my arms to others. At the heart of the Christian faith is a great exchange which God made first. Rather than clinging to the glory of heaven, God let go of heaven to be born on earth and open human arms to human beings. Francis and Cesar were, as you said, uh, Reverend Hartman, practical men. And they understood this practical exchange. They recognized that here's a real bargain. Let go of these little things and gain something so much greater. And Cesar said that, or said as much, when he said, 95% of the strikers lost their homes and cars. But I think that in losing their worldly possessions in order to serve the poor, they found themselves. That's on page 54. Cesar said, When I read the biography of St. Francis of Assisi, I was moved when he went before the Muslim prince and offered to walk through fire to end the bloody war, as as Mario quoted for us. St. Francis was a gentle and humble man, 
Cesar and Francis knew that the most profound peacemaking comes from both humility and courage. Interestingly, Mario did not name one of the sections of this book on courage because he did not have to. Every one of these sections illustrated the courage found in a humble recognition of who I am as a limited human being and who God is as both all-powerful and all-loving. Cesar knew that God was all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing. And that's where I think this, this patience comes in, the patience that's remarked upon over and over again in here, that God's timing only mystifies us because God knows all time and we don't. So Cesar reminded us, there is no such thing as means and ends. Everything we do is an end in itself that we can never erase. That's on page 75. At the heart of Franciscan thought, lies a recognition of the value of all things, anything, the smallest thing, done in love. Nothing, which Cesar said, more deeply reflected many Franciscan values than these challenging words to all of us. We want to protect the victim from being victim. We want to protect to protect the executioner from being the executioner. On page 73, that one thought contains within it an incarnational, a fraternal, a peaceful value as well as a concern for those who have been marginated on both sides by an inhuman, unequal distribution of power. That is at the heart of Franciscan thought. But the last challenge I shall mention, Cesar gave to the church, the community, in the 20th century, as Francis had challenged the church, the community, in the 13th century. Cesar wrote, or said, in a nutshell, what do we want the church to do? We don't ask for more cathedrals. We don't ask for bigger churches or fine gifts. We ask for its presence with us, beside us, as Christ among us. We ask the church 
to sacrifice with the people for social change, for justice, and for love of brother. We don't ask for words. We ask for deeds. We don't ask for paternalism. We ask for servanthood. That's on page 90. Both Francis and Cesar were prophets. They were prophets, Rudy, because both of them lived out that challenge. Their prophetic stance arose from living lives rooted in a certain faith that we do not live because of ourselves. We do not live for ourselves. And we can never live truly human lives isolated from the needy around us. I am personally still trying to learn the lessons which both Cesar and Francis taught. I have read many biographies of Francis, but the source to which I constantly return for real inspiration is not a biography, but a book of Francis's words, which have such power because they were lived as well as spoken. I suspect that many will return to this book, Mario, for the same reason. Thank you. Well, this does this part of the presentations, and we're now about to enter into some questions and conversation about the topic that has brought us together today. I'd like to thank the panelists for their presentations. There's certainly no shortage of ideas that should keep us very much entertained in conversation for, for a long time. Um, but before I proceed, I want to add one of my own um, as, as, as we begin to, to close. And, and I speak here as an anthropologist who today works with farm workers, who until recently was in Delano working with farm workers this summer in the grape harvest. Uh, and so I bring also a little bit of not the past of the farm worker struggle, but the continuing situation of the farm worker in California. Um, and I also want to a little bit play with your pardon, a little bit of the devil's advocate in this, in this discussion around Cesar Chavez and the Cesar Chavez gospel. To me, um, one of the things that uh, is, is of great interest in what I've heard and learned today is this very close relationship between labor and the church, which is not very common for those of us who study social movements in the 19th and 20th century. The relationship between the church and, and labor movements has never been an easy one. Um, it's also, I think, worthwhile asking 
to what degree Cesar Chavez's success as a labor organizer, who entered a world where many had failed and failed miserably in their ability not only to organize labor, but especially to be able to sustain a, a, a movement within American society, and particularly in California. The, the question that comes up is, why was Cesar successful where so many others failed? And, and the question comes, uh, again, the answer, or the possible answer is, to what degree the church and the gospel and his spirituality had uh, an effect of protecting him from the typical type of attacks that labor organizers would have, accused of being communist agents, of being red, of being left, and, and through a, a campaign against labor organizers were usually destroyed in terms of their ability to sustain a social movement in this country. The, the question is thinking of Cesar Chavez as the pragmatical man he was is to what extent is this spirituality also a political calculation mm -hmm. as a way to protect himself from, from the, what had destroyed other labor organizers in the past. Uh, I think it's worthwhile, again, reflecting and opening this as part of the discussion to what extent this allowed him to deflect this kind of attacks. What, what I think adds to interest to me as, again, a specialist in farm labor in the U.S. is that the only other successful labor organizer in the U.S. is Valdemar Velasquez in the Midwest who organized the Farm Labor Organizing Committee and continues to be very active in the Midwest. And Valdemar, like Cesar, has also uh, wrapped himself around religio religio religiosity and managed to deflect the kinds of attacks that have destroyed other labor organizers. So again, I want to put this out as another dimension for our possible discussion and conversations. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.